As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and with four races down, any hopes of a quick fix for the porpoising problems of the Mercedes W13 have vanished. So can we now count it out of the championship, and could it be time for a fundamental rethink of the car concept? I'm Ed Shaw, and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell and Gary Anderson. Well, Scott, how are you doing, other than the fact you seem to be in a cupboard? <laughs> I am in the cupboard. Um... I'm in I'm uh, mid uh, flat DIY and office relocation. Um I don't have a suitable place to podcast in my flat right now. My uh what was my office in the corner of my living room is now just basically a completely barren room and it's so echoey. Uh, and I just fear that uh, however bad it is to listen to me on this podcast it would have absolutely been worse if I'd recorded in there. So I've retreated to the uh sanctity of uh cupboard that we've got. I should also stress these are uh, these are Sarah's work dresses and, and work clothes. Um, I don't have a problem with, uh, with with wearing dresses, but these one in particular are not mine. <laughs> not your size, evidently. Uh, and Gary Anderson, not in a cupboard. You've done all your DIY in your house. That was a, that was a big project for a few years ago. So, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, yeah. I've enjoyed the first four races. They've been uh, quite exciting, I suppose you might call it. It's it's nice to see Ferrari back up there, even though I do get abused a bit by saying that. Uh, I couldn't quite see how the Ferrari connected up beside Paul Design. I still say that, but never mind. They're uh, they're obviously competitive, and that's all that matters. And they're having a good time, uh, Dyson with with uh, with Red Bull. It would be nice to see Mercedes in the mix there as well, because the you know they've been a yardstick for a while. Um, the one thing I would like to say is to Scott is just make sure that cupboard door doesn't isn't able to be locked from the outside, because um, there might be somebody take advantage of that, Scott, when you're in there. And Sarah, Sarah's at work at the moment, so I'm I'm safe for now. I'm safe for now, but I do I do need to make sure that uh, she doesn't sneak in because I, I agree I, I would absolutely be doing that if it was um, if it was me on the outside and I knew I could hide myself in here. You're also perfectly capable of locking yourself in the cupboard accidentally, so that's always a, a possibility as uh, as well. Well, let's get to it, Scott. We know Mercedes has got problems. We know they're aerodynamic in nature. We know that it's porpoising troubles that haven't been improved and the car needs to run a lot lower if it's to produce the downforce the team believes it can do, but obviously it can't. Have you detected much change in what Mercedes has been saying about this problem over the past couple of months? Um, well, yes and no. The, the bit that hasn't changed is that they've been reiterating constantly the, the same thing that it was said pretty much a, a, as soon as the problem reared its head, which is that it's not a, it's not a simple issue to, to, to understand. The effort is all about making sure they actually know what the specific cause of the problem is, having identified broadly, obviously, what the issue is and worked out the interim solution uh, to 
but that's a slightly generous word because all that is is basically just running the car higher and just not not in an optimized state. That that hasn't really changed. That has been the case since really the second test. That's where it was obviously Barcelona was just a bit too difficult for anyone to really fully understand where they were. Second test, I think they realized just how much trouble they were in. Um and then since then it's just been a constant case of we need to actually understand the problem. We need to try to model it. We can't replicate it in the simulator or the wind tunnel, so we need to try to get our heads around it. What has changed slightly is that, first of all, the outlook for the season has got a bit more pessimistic, particularly at Imola. There was a lot of talk at Imola about can't consider ourselves title favorite, uh, sorry, title challengers. Lewis Hamilton emphatically saying he is not in this championship um, and even George Russell, who's had a good start to the, the the season by Mercedes' current standards, saying that they're overachieving at the moment, basically, and that they can't continue this these results. He's got four top five finishes in the first four races unless the car improves because it's not sustainable. So that became a bit more pessimistic. But we also heard after Imola the first signs of potentially Mercedes having something in the works that could actually improve it. The first time that they've talked about it moving from trying to understand the problem to actually putting stuff on the car that potentially leads to a solution. That could be as early as Miami. The details are very vague. They've just talked very loosely about potentially having some new parts on the car as soon as Miami that let them see if they are indeed going in the right direction in terms of understanding the problem. It basically couldn't get vaguer than that in terms of try it being close to a solution. But that I think that just underlines the severity and complexity of the problem that Mercedes finds itself with. Yeah, they've had a desire to bring up grades for quite a while and haven't done anything particularly substantial, but they're being a little bit cautious with cost cap and trying to understand the problem before they do anything big. But Gary, looking at this in broad terms, other teams have hit porpoising problems. It's a ground effect phenomenon, but they've got them under control. Why do you think it's proving so difficult for Mercedes? Um, well, I think it does originate from their, their uh, side pod design, from what we see, the visual part of it. Because, you know, if you look at the Ferrari, you look at the Red Bull, you look at any of the other cars in reality, or the, the, the good cars, I suppose, the um, the big thing is basically to make sure that you create as much outwash at the front as possible. Outwash has been the big word for a long, long time on Formula 1 cars, but it was... Um, it was sort of tried to be eliminated, I suppose, for 2022. And Mercedes sort of complied with the regulation, I suppose you might call it. They they built a side pod that, that generated less outwash than the, the the part of the side pod that holds the radiator duct or the radiator inlet and the, and the, and the radiator itself doesn't go as wide as it could do. And, and that all contributes to how much flow you, you, you push outwards across that front corner of the floor. The amount of flow you push over that front corner of the floor pulls the flow through the underneath of the front corner of the floor, giving you downforce from that part in its in its own right, I suppose you might call it. And the uh, the splitters that we ha- that are in the leading edge of that floor, there's three large, quite large turning veins. Well there's four really, but one of them is the end of the underfloor. Um but there's those those turning veins all work together with that outwash to pull as much flow as possible through that front corner, generating downforce from that area in itself. So then what you're left with is half of the side pod from the rear tire forwards um, that can pull airflow into the diffuser or the diffuser will pull airflow through. Um, And that's obviously the area where you seal it, or you try to seal it as best possible, either mechanically by letting the car run as low as possible um, or trying to seal the gap basically mechanically by running the car as low as possible or you try to seal it aerodynamically by setting up some vortex structure that will try to scavenge some of that flow out from underneath the car or if it doesn't scavenge flow out from underneath the car it will stop so much leaking in underneath the car now in my book mercedes don't have that for, that first part they don't have the outwash they don't have the the turning moment on the flow that helps that front corner of the flow work as hard as possible so to get the performance from the underfloor of their car they have to run the car low a they don't they don't have that uh, as i say that turning moment on the front corner and b it doesn't set up the vortices the vortices that are required to seal that side of the floor as well as as it should do so they re- they have they rely you know 90 percent on the right height of the car whereas other cars rely 40 percent on the right height of the car um 
So will it have to change? Will it have to be a complete concept change in, in the side pod arrangement? I'm sure there's trick things you can do there that uh, that would make it work better. I'm not sure you'll make it work as well as the guys at the front without a concept change. And the, the, the little turning vanes they put on in front of the radiator duct um, for Imola, I think Imola... I don't think Imola, I don't think the car was as good at Imola as it was at some of the other races. Um, and I think that's the wrong way because what they're trying to do is influence the radiator flow. Um, with their tall, narrow radiator inlet, they're trying to influence that radiator flow. And that radiator flow, it, you know, the car can't flow the air through the radiator for all speeds that it goes through. So it will start to, to stack up. The flow in front of the radiator will start to build a pressure up as the, as the car increases in speed. And that flow wants to go somewhere. Now, you can let it go around the side of the side pod in the undercut, or you can let it be sucked into the underfloor, which is what Mercedes are doing. And I think that, that again, changes the characteristics of the car dramatically from uh, high speed to low speed. So there's a lot to understand. There's a lot to rectify. But uh, we've got to have confidence that Mercedes will get on top of it at some point in time. You've been working on a written piece uh, about this problem with the Mercedes, and one of the points you make in that, it should be available to read by the time people are listening to this, is that perhaps Mercedes has a little bit of a gap in the, in the knowledge base compared to some of the others about that whole ceiling of the floor, the the control of the vortices, etc., because they ran low rake throughout the previous generation. Other teams, well, all other teams at some stage or another ran much higher rakes, so they had to work a bit harder from that. So maybe there's a little bit of a a knowledge deficit there, which I thought was quite an interesting suggestion for why Mercedes may have been sucked into this. Yeah, I suppose the old saying, you know, every day in every way we'll learn something new. And the the thing with the with the Red Bull, they've always run the you know high rake or have for quite a few years, and because of that, your your whole um, your whole learning curve is about how that vortex structure works on the edge of the floor. Because you you can't run the high rake, even in the old cars, you can't run the high rake without there being more leakage into the diffuser, unless you can seal it with something. So the knowledge they gained and the other teams gained to a certain percentage has helped them on their way. Whereas you know. Mercedes decided the flat package was the best solution for them. And now if you if you took a you know a Mercedes car and jacked the rear ride height up, the, the last year's car, let's say, and, and jacked the rear ride up height up by 30, 40, 50 millimeters, it would have less downforce because it will just leak more underneath the floor. So the thing about it is then to accept that loss of downforce and try to do something about it. And they didn't put themselves in that position. Um, they they just said okay well if we lower the car it it it, it, it gives us better figures which is true yeah hundred percent true and the same was true of this year's car when they did their initial research you know they they stuck by the flat the flat um, car profile so or ride height profile so you know they didn't they didn't have the learning to sort of help them if they raised the car. And we're only talking this year, maybe 10 millimeters. We're not talking 50 millimeters. You know, we're talking a very small amount to move it away from the critical purposing. And um, I keep talking about it as a mechanical seal or an aer- aerodynamic seal. And the way to relate that, I think, is, is it's a bit like a light switch or a dimmer switch. You know, if you have a mechanical seal, it's like a light switch. So they're on or off. That's it. So you're either sealing the floor or you're not. And that's what you see with the Mercedes. If you have a dimmer switch, you know, it gets close to the floor. It doesn't completely, it gets close to the ground. It doesn't completely seal because there's still a, a volume of air going through that that critical area of the floor, which is very, very close to the ground at the sides. So it's a, it's a bit like a dimmer switch. It's not a switch on and off. It's a, you know, progressive thing. So you can move the car a millimeter and lose a little bit more downforce but it's not too bad. Whereas on the Mercedes, I think if you move it a millimeter or whatever, you know, you, you either have it on or off and that's a big downforce loss. So I think the research direction is, is the knowledge from the past for this car initially. And they need to look at it very, very closely. And it's, it's what's happening very close to the ground. They need to have a very, very good look at to make sure that it's not, to make sure they understand how the, the airflow separation or what height the airflow separation happens at. And, how it recovers after that as well. Because, you know, whenever you consider these cars, it's all right looking down the straight. <clears throat> and in theory, if the, the floor is completely rigid, the outside edges should be 10 millimeters away from the from the ground. That's It's 10 millimeters higher because of the plank. But in the corner, with a little bit of roll in the car, 
It isn't. The outside, the outside of the, the car um, gets closer to the ground and the inside of the car gets a bit further away. So if one side of the diffuser stalls, you know, it, it, it's a massive amount of downforce lost. So it's, a, it's about really a lot of research to, to, from the tools you've got to try to understand it. It'll never be as good as doing it on the circuit, but you have got some tools and you can research it to a certain level. You'll never be 100% sure about it, but you can get yourself to probably 80% sure about it. The thing that's interesting is, although they're building knowledge about it, they still don't seem to have a really great handle on it because at Imola they were surprised by the amount of porpoising there was. Scott, how stern a test do you think this is of Mercedes? They're obviously an outstanding team. They've had a huge amount of success, but it's been a very long time since they've been in in such a deep hole, isn't it? Yeah, it's... um... I guess it it reminds me a little bit of the process I think they had to go through um, when they were expanding the team again in the early years of the Mercedes era. Obviously, it inherited, it taken over Braun and it inherited a a cut down team. And the whole point was that it was, it didn't have to, it didn't have to grow as 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 much as it ended up growing because this was what was it called the resource restriction agreement? It was at the time, wasn't it? And that was what it was all geared around and then it became clear that actually no that's that wasn't going to happen so they really needed to invest in the team again and during this period which would have been I guess sort of really sort of 12 13 was the key key time they actually they did a much better job of bringing together parts of the organization working more as a team instead of having different groups looking out for one and one another that's where the the often talked about famous Mercedes culture comes from it's 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 those years but while that obviously led to the incredible dual program for 2014 with the concept around the car but also the engine as well and it allowed them to be in a position where they were able to develop fantastic race cars throughout the V6 turbo hybrid era so far they've not faced something quite like this because I think while it would be disingenuous to say that everything Mercedes has overcome in the last few years has been exactly the same, I think it is fair to characterise all the challenges Mercedes has had as a design unit as conventional F1 design challenges over the last few years. You know, it's ultimately, it always comes down to um, how do we get a bit more, how do we get a bit more downforce? How do we manage the, the, the tyres a little bit better? How can we use the suspension a bit more cleverly? It's all quite conventional stuff. And then we come into this season and yeah, I know that porpoising isn't a phenomenon that is entirely brand new to Formula One in F1 2022, but it the way it's manifesting itself is clearly something that a lot of these engineers haven't experienced before and don't know how to tackle it. If you've got if you've got a lack of downforce, for example, which is what McLaren has identified as its chief weakness with the 2022 car, then you start, a, I guess, a fairly conventional program of, right, well, wh- where are the parts of the car that we can try and produce more downforce? How do we get more downforce from fr- from the floor? What, how can we change the diffuser? All, all, all of this stuff. But if you've got a problem that you can't rectify on the wind tunnel and the simulator... Obviously, you're at a loss in terms of where do you start in terms of fixing this. I don't think there's any real reference for them in terms of fixing this either. I, I, so I I do believe that they will get on top of it because I think they're a, a fantastic organisation and they've shown it with all of these other challenges in the past. But I, I have felt from the beginning that this is a very different kind of problem to be faced with and that's part of why it takes so long to solve because I just don't think there is that reference that there is if you have a a slightly more conventional setup or design problem. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Gary, you've been there. What's it like when you've got a car problem and you you understand what the problem is, but not necessarily its source? How difficult is it, especially if 
you initially think, oh, it won't take too long to find the route of this. And then you're gradually realizing that you are scrambling around a bit to, to try and get to the root of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's tough. Um, and usually the people around the outside of you don't actually understand how tough it is. You know, they just think it's a, a couple of, that not, it turns on a knob somewhere and, and suddenly you'll be competitive. Um, I mean, I can relate it to many occasions, but I suppose the, the, the best one was sort of 1998 where, you know, we built a car that from the numbers that we got from the wind tunnel as far as right height map, sensitivities, downforce, um, or car stiffness, um, you know, all the weight of the car, everything was a positive direction. Everything was in the right direction that we felt made a car go faster, but the car didn't. The car wasn't slow. It was just horrible to drive. And, it, you know, it took a bit of head scratching. It took us to, to Monaco before it sort of clicked as to what was going on because Monaco was a very poor performance. And obviously the one thing you do at Monaco is you have much more steering lock on the car um, than most other tracks. Um, nearly all the time, not 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 all corners, but you know some corners. So you can look a bit deeper at what happens, and that was when it sort of led me to research, you know, steering aerodynamics. What happened to the centre of pressure whenever you put steering lock in the car? Now you could say, okay, you should have researched that anyway. Um, we we did look at it on various occasions during the years before that, but very naively, I suppose you might call it. Um, and it was more to look at how the tire profiles. Uh, changed the characteristics um, with with steering lock, but once you sort of find the problem, then identifying what you can do with it, it's just a matter of of tunnel testing and, and lateral thinking, I suppose you might call it. Because you know, I've said many times, there's no team out there that knows a hundred percent what makes the car go fast. The the best team always knows more than the other teams. That's the thing about it. And at the minute. You know, you could say that that Ferrari and, and uh, Red Bull at this point in time know more about how to make their car go fast than all the rest of them. You know, whenever we relate it there to McLaren and the, their lack in downforce, it would be very, very easy for McLaren to generate more downforce and generate much more porpoising. So it's the compromise you've got within your your sort of package, how it all works, that you've got to be very careful not to upset. Um, Mercedes can can probably reduce their porpoising but lose performance. So the two, they all go hand in hand. Um, so it's, a, it's the sort of discipline, I suppose you might call it, to not engineer your, your problem into a bigger problem. You see, discipline is to engineer and try to identify the problem, make sure you're you're reducing that problem, at least, if not if nothing else. And as I say, for Emila, I think the veins that Mercedes put, the extra veins that Mercedes put on the side of the, side po- or the, side of the monocoque in front of the radiator duct to work on that bottom part of the radiator duct um, made the floor work worse. It probably made it work. It probably gave it more downforce in the wind tunnel, but that meant the porpoising was worse. So you know, it's a spiral to nowhere, really. I think the biggest thing I would change on the Mercedes, I suppose, if I was instantly going to try to say I want to make a, a, a an actual change on this, I would change that uh, radiator inlet duct to more horizontal radiator inlet duct higher up, um, and make sure you disconnect the radiator intake from the underfloor. That way you'll get much more consistency. Um, and then from there on in, obviously, you, you have to create this uh, outwash. But, you know, they're working flat out on it. And I'm sure, as Scott says, I'm sure they will um, get on top of it. How soon is the problem, you know? But um, we all want to see them racing at the front because, I say, they were they have been the measure over the last few years. But I don't also just think that it's 100% um, – the porpoising and aerodynamics that's causing Mercedes the problem. I don't think the power unit is as is as dominant as it was in the past. Might not be worse, but I think Ferrari and, and uh, Red Bull powertrains, whatever it's called nowadays, with the Honda engine has has come on strongly. Um, but not you know the expense of potentially a question mark around the reliability. But uh, that we'll only see that whenever we get into six or seven, basically. Yeah, I guess the hope for Mercedes is that all the research and knowledge they're building will stand them in good stead for the long term, but that's quite a distant, far-off point. Well, I think one of the things to remember on this is that at least we're in a stable set of regulations. That's one of the things that Toto Wolf has talked about, which is that because there isn't a... unless we're we're missing something and there's a a dramatic vote coming up in the next few months, there isn't going to be a, a huge departure from this technical 
set of regulations for next year or the next few years. So Mercedes obviously backs this concept because it has been months and months and months of development in the making. So at the moment, they're sticking to their guns and thinking, if we can get it to work in reality the way it works in simulation, then we can clearly see the potential that there, that there is here. And if we continue to, to, to work on this and unlock this, okay, it might come too late to save the 2022 season, but it's still going to be valid for 2023 and beyond. Again, unless something dramatic changes, something's banned, something pulls the rug from under their feet. So it's not just a case of they can go, ah, oh, well, we've clearly dropped the ball on 2022, 2023. Let, we've got limited wind tunnel time, limited money to spend. Let's just write off 22, put all the money and everything into the 23 car and we go again. You can't, you can't do that if you've created a if you've created a concept, come up with a concept that you believe in, spend months developing, and something doesn't work on it. Because because what do you do? Even if even if this concept can't be saved, and the best thing for Mercedes to do is to start again, until they've understood what, what was the problem with this concept, you can't just create another one from, from scratch, really, because you don't understand what it was you got wrong initially. So what's to say you're not going to do the same thing, get the same thing wrong, or get something else similar wrong if you start again from scratch so it is it is complicated but just that I, I i do think that 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 is a bit of a carrot that idea that persevere 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 because if if you crack it it's not just a one-year thing they're not just looking to save one season they're looking to set themselves up a bit longer term and i, I think that does offer them a bit of light at the end of the tunnel but it's just a painful thing to go through because they don't want to accept that 2022 is out the window but obviously the longer the the longer we go on the more races tick by and this is happening and they're scrapping over fourths fifths and sixths at at best unless something dramatic happens to one of the red bulls or ferraris then that's obviously a very very difficult situation to be in but scott i think all they have to do is listen to this podcast (laughs) <laughs> and, they'll, and they'll get a direction from it. I mean, you know, yeah, I agree 100% with you. The, the thing is that every day you should, you, you're researching stuff. What you have to do is widen your horizon and research it in a different way. And obviously what they've ended up with, and I said at the time, they must have had very good numbers from it to commit to it because it is a, a big committal to a, to a side pod design, the cooling philosophy that they've got on the car. It is, you know, deviation from the norm. Um, it's all of that sort of stuff. So they had to have good numbers from it. Um, to do it and it'd be very difficult to drag themselves away from that and you know that uh, I think Tula Wolf said you know the con there isn't such a thing as a bad concept but what you start with and where you head to with the car is is how you you sort of visualize what you want to try and generate or create and then from there on in you optimize it and you know that optimization is done all around the concept of the car, all the little stuff and the rods on the bodywork and the undercuts and the, the flick ups and the whatever, they're all done around a basic sort of vision, I suppose you might call it. And they, they've got to change that part of it. They've got to, they've got to look at it differently, I think, before they'll, they'll get to a point where they, they start to get a response out of it in another way. Um, it will take time and it's, it's one of those sort of difficult things. As we said again in the podcast, you know, they don't have people there with experience of ground effect. There probably is a few, but ground effect is completely different now to what it was back in the 80s. You know, it's, it's one of those sort of things where things things keep changing. And while Mercedes are trying to catch up, it's the same as we've had over the past with Red Bull and, and Ferrari. While Mercedes are trying to catch up, the others are, you know, they're not standing still. They're going to move, move further ahead So uh, with their understanding of how it all works. So it's going to be interesting. They need to take that, that big big step first. And then get to there and and um, and sort of get close to the competition, and then the motivation will start to build up again because motivation's quite difficult for a driver whenever you know you've gone from a championship winning and race winning car to struggling for points. Well, the subject of driver motivation has just been mentioned. So, Scott, inevitably, the Mercedes troubles means that Lewis Hamilton's results haven't been great by the standards of the past eight years, and there have been suggestions in some quarters that he might be losing interest. Have you seen any sign of that? No, not really. I, I see signs of frustration, obviously, because what racing driver wants to go through exactly what Gary's just outlined there and go from fighting for championships and go into every weekend knowing that there's a chance of a race win to not knowing if 
your setup your setup experiments are going to leave you getting knocked out in Q1 or, or, or Q2. And the even best case scenario, you're probably only lining up on the third row of the grid. And that that that's not that's not going to be easy to manage. Um, it's a different situation for Hamilton to approach than it is George Russell in the context of their respective careers. Because I just think after you've done the same thing for 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 so long, you have to find ways to motivate yourself. And the the thing that always impressed me during Hamilton's run of titles was always that he just found it wasn't just a case of coming back, driving the best car and just coasting to victory every single season. He always found little challenges. He always found ways to motivate himself and he always managed to sort of up his game slightly. You look at the way he performed at the end of last season, for example, as as hard and as, as draining, as, as toxic as the 2021 season would have got for both Hamilton and Verstappen at times. I think it's fair to say that they both pushed each other to to new heights. And I think the way Lewis performed at the end of last year was as good, if not better, than we've seen him in, 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 in previous seasons. So there's no sign of a physical degradation or a competitive degradation as a driver. On that side of things, I think he would be happy to continue. It's just unrealistic to to expect someone like him in his position at the end, coming to the end of his career, to look at this and 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 just react to it in exactly the same way as George Russell, who's four races into the the the, the team switch that could define his entire career. So there's just different motivations going on, and I don't think that things like the Saudi and Imola weekends where Hamilton's results were so bad. First of all, there's no he was nowhere near as bad in those weekends as um some people like to make out. He he the the final results were bad and there were elements of that weekend in which he clearly did worse than Russell, but not by the amount that the gaps between them made it uh, made it indicate. And the suggest there are always suggestions there that that is a manifestation of Hamilton trying something a little bit different, not dramatically different, but different enough to basically just create a different set of circumstances, effectively. The car doesn't work quite as well. And Russell says that they're both vulnerable to this because he says at its worst, the Mercedes doesn't feel like a proper racing car to drive. So they're, they're both vulnerable to it falling into this window where it's just a bit of a, it's just a bit of a nightmare. I think behind the scenes, Hamilton is is going to be an incredible galvanizing force for Mercedes. I always felt that his most underrated trait the last few years has been his work ethic behind the scenes. You talk to people like Toto Wolff, Andrew Shovlin, guys who, James Allison as well, is someone who's talked about this really, really nicely in the last two or three years. They don't understand, they don't, Hamilton's critics have never really understood how fired up and how hard he works behind the scenes and I genuinely like sometimes you hear stuff he says and it might just sound a bit like empty platitudes say the right thing yeah 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 we're all in this together but he, I, he does he does believe that and while sometimes the frustration boils over over the team radio or immediately in a tv interview after a session and Hamilton sounds a bit petulant or he sounds a bit immature or whatever that's just ultimately successful sports person not getting there their own way when it's competitive. I don't think that's what he's like behind the scenes. I was really surprised to see that someone like Mika Hakkinen said after, was it Australia, that he thinks that Lewis will be sulking and thinking about quitting or moving teams and that he'll be really difficult and stuff like this. I thought that was I thought that was quite a cheap shot. I don't really know what it was based on. I, I just I just don't see how Hamilton will behaving like be be behaving like that behind the scenes. But I've been told before that I'm perhaps far too um, in love with Hamilton to give a neutral opinion, so maybe I'm just completely in the wrong. Well, we'll get Gary's opinion on it now. Different drivers do react in different ways to this sort of thing, don't they? That's fair to say. I don't think you can criticise him for being on a bit of a low. I mean, last year, you know, the big battle was with with Verstappen, and it was a great battle right to the bitter end. Um, Dubious at times during the season with both of them, but at the end of the day, you know, it was a an FIA call that lost Lewis his eighth world championship, I suppose, and and um, and Verstappen went on to get his first, and and rightly so. Verstappen, in my opinion, was you know was good all season. He led more laps. He did all sorts of stuff. So he's a very very worthy champion. Um, Lewis, you know, he didn't really take that very well. I suppose that last race of the season. Um, 
and I suppose it's it's true. He you know he shouldn't. He saw you know his eighth world championship dragged away from him for no no fault of his own. But still, you know you've it must eat at you a little bit. And uh, coming into this year, I think he expected to you know recover that and and say right here I am you know muscles out and, and away we go and and uh, everything's going to work for me and I'm going to show them what what last year should have been. Um, so it's not just about what's happening right now. There is a history to it, I suppose you might call it. And uh, it's one of those sort of situations where you need to, you know, you need to buy into the fact that, say, you're going to, for a while, you might fight for those, you know, small points uh, as opposed to be fighting for the big points. And you need to buy into that, though, mentally and physically. Um, the team, it's it's a difficult thing because, you know, what we're seeing right now, and we keep saying about it, and it's, this is going back to the car a little bit, um, you know, we, 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 we know it's very difficult to research this porpoising. And while it's very difficult to research this porpoising, it means that all your simulation tools that you have, your driver in the loop tool, doesn't work. Anything like the car on the track. Because all that has as a set of numbers, all the driver in the loop simulation has is, is numbers from the wind tunnel. Um, and with that, then you can change the mechanical setup, you can change the, those numbers from the wind tunnel. But they're not numbers, or they're very seldom, they're numbers from the track. Because generating numbers from the track is very, very difficult. But the cars are now working differently on the track to they are in the wind tunnel. So it's about the one that can adapt that that uh, handling characteristic, I suppose, of the porpoising and, and adapt their driver-in-the-loop simulation that might end up getting the setup a bit better without having to go to the track all the time. And I'm sure you know Ferrari, Red Bull, and all the other teams are trying to achieve that. But it's very, very difficult because, as I say, the, the driver-in-the-loop the, the driver simulator knows nothing except for the numbers you put into it. You could tell it lies, you could double the downforce and you'll go faster for sure. But on the track, it doesn't have that double the downforce. So at the end of the day, you just need to now engineer the car a bit more real time at a race meeting on the track to get the best out of it, as opposed to being able to um, engineer the car back at base and um, you know get the best out of it and then put it on the car at the track. So that's another thing that, that you know Lewis is going to have to learn, I suppose, is the fact that it's now about not taking those big setup gambles. It's about dotting the I's and crossing the T's because, you know, although we were criticizing it for being, you know, the car for not being the, as performant as it should be, it's not far away. You know, we're talking about small, small amounts here. We're talking, you know, at worst one percent probably from for the Mercedes as opposed to where it should be. But it's not the you know the biggest drama in the world. But you can easily miss it by just being too adventurous on setup. And I think George Russell's shown that having driven the Williams, which has not been a great car for many years, that he's, you know, you have to hone in on it a little bit because, again, it's not that bad a car. You just can't, you know, you don't want to take the front wing and stick it on the on the back of the car or vice versa. You know, it's not big things you need to change. It's small things you need to change and just eat into that percentage deficit you got. And Lewis needs to start to, start to work with that a bit more now. And uh, that, that'll motivate him as well because, you know, as a challenge, it's a different challenge. It's a challenge on the track as opposed to a challenge from the back room of the of the, the, the company's structure. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. I think they will get there. When, I don't know, but I think they will get there. I think one of the things to factor in is that you look at how the circumstances of a weekend have played out. <clears throat> and I think that's where you potentially see, I don't want to say Hamilton's head drop, but at least some kind of approximation of it. If you look at Bahrain and Australia, for example, were the two strong ones and Saudi and Imola were the bad ones. In Bahrain and Australia, things were a lot more straightforward in terms of the weekend as as a whole. It's just the car wasn't very quickly. So Lewis did a perfectly decent job in, in, in qualifying. He was ahead of um, He was ahead of George. And in the race, you know, he was opportunistic at the start of... Um, at the start of those Grand Prix, he actually ran in a slightly higher position than the Mercedes should have been. And you could see he was up for it. Those are the moments where you're just like, it doesn't matter that he's not fighting for the win here or he's not realistically going to be on the podium here, but he's up for it. And he's actually, you know, he's leading the team by example. But then in the Saudi and Imola weekends where the cars may be a little bit more difficult, maybe that's where I don't, whatever the reason is, whether it's just a bit of impatience, whether it's just because, Mercedes wants to try something a bit different and they and they say okay well we're going to put it on the more experienced guys car because that's going to be the best reference for it and it starts to go wrong that's that's where Lewis just hasn't 
ended up getting the same out of it that, that George has. It's almost like higher peaks, but then lower dips as as well. And there could be all sorts of reasons for that. But it's just, it's interesting that it has been that much of a yo-yo. The thing that, I, just the thing that annoyed me in the wake of Imola, especially in some of the media sessions as well, with a couple of the questions that were being asked, you would have thought that Lewis had had, you know, his backside handed to him over the all four races. And that, you know, that gap in the championship was purely down to George just completely wiping the floor with him and i that's the that's the bit i don't like do you know what i mean where, where it's like it's over exaggerated and that, that there's a narrative being twisted and created that, that isn't actually there it's perfectly valid to, to to question elements of what lewis is doing and to say on this weekend or in this session he didn't do a, as good a job as as russell but i just think it's a bit of a fantasy that some people have created to to suggest that you know russell has had the upper hand all season long, which is definitely what some people would have you believe. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that it becomes a little bit of a narrative that it's forced into. George Russell's made a very good start to his full-time Mercedes career, no question about that. But it's not a thing whereby one teammate succeeds and the other fails. It's not quite as as straightforward as that. And it'll be interesting to see how Hamilton adapts to the slightly different challenger this year. And the signs are that I think he's, he's up for the fight. Now, Scott, we've got to briefly revisit Grid Rival again because we've got to work out our plans for our teams for the coming week. Of course, Grid Rival's a fancy motorsport game. The race has its own league there. You can take on Scott and me and for the most part be ahead of us because we've not been doing very well. Still open for sign-ups. And of course, the big question is what drivers you select. I've got a couple of spaces in my team. What, what are you thinking, Scott? I'm considering getting Fernando Alonso, but I think you already had him, didn't you? I do have him still. My my situation is a little bit more, um, a little bit more tricky because I th- I'm in a position at the moment where the majority of my drivers are locked in on existing contracts and I don't have a huge amount of money in the bank. So my past tactic of binning off drivers take for for a fee, binning off drivers that I did have on a contract because they weren't the right ones. I don't really think I can really play that this this week because I just don't quite have the um the funds for it. I've got a I've got a full lineup locked in and contracted and you know most of them I'm happy with. Um I don't have um the the main problem I've got at the moment is I don't have any Red Bull representation and that's just a way that's just a consequence of how um the uh the lockdown function works where if you've had a driver or a team you can't have them sign them again for the next race if their contract expires um and just the way budgets fell so i'm just i'm in a dangerous phase at the moment with no red bull it feels a little bit like playing the fantasy premier league game and having no man city or liverpool players to be honest um so a little bit dangerous but i'm i'm hopeful that um i'm hopeful that alonso's terrible misfortune will end and he will deliver a big result in miami because i i sorely need that yeah, I'm backing the unfortunate Spaniards at the moment because I've got Carlos Sainz already and I might add Fernando Alonso because they're both good value because obviously the prices fluctuate with their point scores. But I do have Verstappen and I've got Ferrari as my team. So I've, I've got coverage of of both of them. And I'm, I'm keen to inflict another defeat on you in, in Miami, Scott. That's my uh, big ambition. We'll continue to track progress at Grid Rival over the year. So download the Grid Rival app or visit the website so you can join in and be another person who is uh, outperforming me and Scott. You can find the link in the episode description for this podcast. Well, the FIA revealed its six targets for the 2026 regulations on the chassis side recently. They're very broad and vague at this stage, but they do give us an idea of the priorities in terms of the next big step of the technical regulations car-wise. The six targets are significantly reduced drag to improve sustainability and efficiency and complement the power unit characteristics, maintain and improve on recent lessons learned about close racing and cars being able to follow each other. Those are the first two. Three is reduce car dimensions. Four, reduce or contain car mass. Five, sustainability, continue path towards the standardization or simplification of strategically selected components for cost-cutting purposes, expand the usage of sustainable materials or technologies, and focus on recyclability. And the sixth and final one is continued innovation in terms of car safety, moving towards active and connected safety systems. Gary, in general, what do you make of the direction the FIA has laid out? Um, well, first of all, it's what four years away, so I think let's not get too excited about what's been laid out. It's, it's going to change dramatically by the time we get there, as as we know normally. 
um, in general, they're all they're all good things. Um, taking them one at a time, you know, significantly reduces the drag to improve sustainability and efficiency. Um, so, you know, basically, if you reduce the car drag, it's it's a very difficult thing to do because the tires are. If you just look at the car we've got now, the tires are a massive percentage of the of the drag of the car, probably forty five percent. So, you know, are we going to put wheel pods on it? Uh, that changes Formula One completely. It could have a wheel pod in front of the wheel and behind the wheel to to flow it into the car. That, but that's a you know changes it a bit from being an open wheel formula. Um, so it's it's about what you want to do by reducing drag. If you actually make the car a bit uh, smaller, which is reduced car dimensions, line three, you know you'll automatically get a little bit less drag if the car's narrower. Um, it'll make the tracks bigger. It'll open up opportunity. So I uh, overtake an opportunity. So I think you know three with just car dimensions is a is a positive thing. But until you put smaller tires on the car, um, smaller wheels and tires on the car, you you know you're not really having a massive effect on that. So once again, it's one of those sort of situations where we've been there. Let's not go around in a circle. Let's let's make sure that we you know you take the car you've got right now, which I think. Um, aesthetically looks reasonable it looks like a racing car i suppose you might call it and hit the 90 percent button and that would be you know a reduction in size but not overall as far as um as what the car visually looks like um we need to look at the sustainability path um and cost cutting you know if you if you look at the efficiency of the car you can tie those two together you could very easily um reap more uh, electrical power from having uh, re- regeneration motors on the front axle. There's nothing done there. It's just a waste of 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 braking effort completely. That could be a standardised component that is made by Joe Bloggs Engineering, um, and you know everybody uses it within the front wheel assembly to to generate power. Uh, your battery pack then gets charged up faster. Uh, you could do exactly the same thing with the MGU uh, K in that it could be a, a bigger unit. Um, so it would regenerate more, but it would also put out more power. At the minute, it's 120 kilowatts, um, 160 horsepower. It could be more of that. And then you could just simply cut down the fuel capacity. It's 110 kilograms of fuel, I think, for the race at the moment. You could very easily cut that down to, to a lesser number. And that would mean all the the, 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 the the manufacturers would have to make their ice, their internal combustion engine, run more efficiently but you still get the same overall power from it because you've generated, you've charged the battery up and generated more from the electrical side of it. So I think they have to go, they have to go more, more electrical and that, that'll do a lot of things that will help them quite a lot with, um, with, yeah, with sustainability, with efficiency. Uh, and then, it, you know, you can look at it again a little bit and say, do you want to have a, an overtake button, which, because if you've got as much electrical power as you, you, could potentially have you could discharge some of that as an overtake button instead of the drs so there's there's lots and lots of things you could do i think everything's in the right direction that we're talking about i think the change in regulations for this year has been good as far as cars following each other i don't think it's been good as far as cars passing each other is concerned um i think the drs has, has to be used yet for for that and that's a bit sad for me because it does show that and uh, we take the Mercedes example, you know, in Emola, um, the fact that George Russell qualified 11th and finished fourth, it was more or less all down to the start line. You know, that first half a lap was where he made the ground up, and then he was able to sit there and stay there. Uh, Lewis Hamilton didn't make up that ground and got stuck there. He couldn't pass, um, you know, the Alfa Tori that was in front of him. So at the end of the day, the, the formula is still all about um, track position. To be honest, and it needs to be that needs to be sort of uh, that needs to be sort of looked at very very closely. Uh, you know, follow closely, but not being able to overtake is is not what the racing was all was intended to be about. So they need to look at that a little bit more. But it's it's a set of proposals now to start to debate, and I think they'll they'll get there somewhere. But my biggest thing to add into it would be to um, just exploit what you got a bit more. Um, you know, more electrical power, less. Uh, internal combustion engine power and you'll end up with the same end result visually but you will end up with a much more efficient package yeah and the plan is to go in exactly that direction i think 350 kilowatts they're talking about for the for the hybrid aspect of the uh the power unit of course the mgu h will go but scott we're, we're pretty close on the on the engine reg so i guess it makes sense 
that Formula One now can start working on the chassis side as well to work with them, especially given they've been able to build up a little bit of data on how the 2022 regs have, have worked. Yeah, it's um, it's good to have the outline, but it's obviously still um, still pretty vague. Uh, I it's encouraging to hear a couple of things that they're aiming for. The main one, but the main one for me does come with an asterisk against it. They're obviously talking about car weight, but it's just that fact that they felt the need to to make it reduce uh, or contain car weight. That was the that was the caveat that. I, I, they might just be being realistic, and if that's the reality of the situation, then that's fine. You can't really do anything about it. But it just it just came across as a bit defeatist to me, just in this in this hypothetical idea of what you want the twenty six regulations to be. There still is an ultimate admission there that oh, we might not be able to achieve this, so maybe we just keep the weight the same. And if that is the case, what this is what I argued after the regulations came out, or sorry, this news about the regulations came out contain it from where from from which point from from now the 22 cars which are already massively heavier than their predecessors or the t- weight of the 2025 cars by the time the this uh, this era of chassis is being replaced in which case is that car going to be 5 10 30 kilos heavier than it is now and and then suddenly we're talking about car weight that's been contained but Compared to the point where they put this objective out, the car's actually still thirty kilos heavier than the heaviest ever F one cars. So, I, I, I honestly don't know what's realistic and achievable. I just know that a lot of F one's ills are rooted in the fact that the cars have got so big and heavy, and it, it might just be one of those things that all the while, hybrid technology is where it is that car weight can't be massively reduced. I certainly wouldn't want to see car weight reduced at the at the uh, expense of a lot of the excellent safety uh, developments and advancements that have been made in in recent years. So I appreciate it's an incredibly tough task, but I probably wouldn't have a problem with it, and I probably wouldn't be annoyed or saying what I'm saying now if they hadn't included it in this framework for 2026 with that asterisk against it, saying, "Oh, we would we'd like to do this, but we don't know if we can." Because it's just one of those things that don't dangle that carrot in front of me, and then basically hint that you're gonna you're gonna whisk it away for uh, four years before we're even seeing these cars actually drive. So it'd be interesting to see what they come up with. Um, I would just it it would just be really nice if we could start if that that trend that has just been going constantly up on the graph of car weight over the last twenty years, or really the last sort of. 13 years really since the the, the the first Kurs design and hybrid tech made its debut in F1 it'd be nice to see that trend reversed but it based on that wording it really doesn't sound like that's something we can realistically hope for yeah it comes down to a question of how you achieve it the weight rises have been the consequence of changes all of which if you work through them to a certain extent make sense so it's very very difficult to know how they're going to do that have you got any bright ideas for weight reduction Gary um, no, well, I've got some some ideas. Bright ideas are, are a bit uncommon these days. I think I think you know if you look at the cars, if you took the car in detail, there's a lot of stuff on it that doesn't need to be there. Um, it's there because the teams feel they need to gather that information or protect the car a little bit. And one of the examples for me is the 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 spring damper arrangement that's um, in the front of the floor. Uh, if you look at where the, the tongue of the floor, there's some pictures around at the minute of of uh, the, that area, the, the tongue where it sticks out from the chassis at the front of the floor. You know, in the past, um, you just had the chassis there and the floor, and you know, you you damage the chassis if you hit it too hard on the curbs and whatever. And but since they 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 um they brought in the sort of deflection tests, um, and everything has to stand the load. Now what you got in there is a sort of a swing arm arrangement that carries a skid at the front of it with a, a vertical damper and spring on it, which means that it can be preloaded to withstand the uh, the load the FIA wanted to withstand, and then after that it it will move, so the floor will bend upwards. Now that's all good stuff, but I I consider it illegal because you know you're not allowed to have flexible bodywork. But every team's probably got something of that nature. And, and the reason they have that nature is because what we can't do is police 
trite limits. So then they build these big yellow sausage curbs. Uh, and definitely if you go over one of those, the way the cars used to be at the front end of the chassis, you would destroy the chassis immediately. So then this, this clever way of protecting the chassis got developed. But it all adds weight to the whole the whole car. All of that trick stuff adds weight to the car. So there's lots of that stuff going around the car that you can very, very easily um, eliminate and save quite a substantial amount of weight. Um, but, you know, you need to start looking at the principles of it. As I say, it used to be that you hit a, a high curb, um, you damage it. That's 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 life. Now they, they put in the yellow sausage curbs, and now it really does damage it. So I think if you could place track limits, you know, electronically or whatever way you want to try and do it, which is so easy nowadays, you know, nearly every road car in the world has got something that picks up the white line on the tr- on the road or whatever. Um, then you can do away with those sausage curbs. Then you can do away with that trick thing underneath the chassis. Then the car will be lighter. So it's a spiral to nowhere, I think, because of the way the, the whole thing looks. You need to look at the whole picture. It's not just one bit. But I would take the, the regulations of the are now at 7, whatever it is, 97. And I'd say for, you know, for 2026, um, bring it down to 750 or whatever, bring it down by a significant number, enough to say, have all that stuff if you want. Have your car overweight if, you, if that's what you feel like doing. But, you know, you, you have an opportunity to make it at 750. So it's down to you to, to dig deep and, and actually... It's never been easy to build the cars at the weight limit. That's part of the challenge. Set the challenge a bit harder for that. Don't just capitulate and sort of say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll go up again a bit more before the next race because everybody's struggling. That's not what it should be like. It's, it should be a challenge. Like like the performance of the cars, it's a challenge. And the weight should be the challenge as well. Yeah, that's very true. There's no obligation to have the minimum weight at a thing that everyone can easily get to. And people aren't that far away, and, and they will... Uh, and they will eventually get there. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, Scott, we're heading to Florida this week for the inaugural F1 Miami Grand Prix. What do you expect from this circuit and this event? Uh, well, I am massively, massively excited for 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 Miami for non F one off track reasons, as I'm hoping you will be Ed as well. And I actually thought I would show that excitement on this podcast by wearing my Philadelphia 76ers NBA jersey, because hopefully while we're out there, we're going to be sneaking the Sixers Miami Heat NBA uh, playoff match, um, because uh, that that round of uh, fixtures includes some. Uh, some Miami action next week. So that's brilliant timing for me because I'm a 76ers fan. Um, it's all part of, uh, obviously this isn't directly linked to, to F1 being there at all, but it's um, it's an event that I think there's a lot of excitement for anyway. Um, I know that there is some absolutely, frankly, just ridiculous stuff going on. Like, Have you both seen that, um, that recreation of the Monaco Harbour that they're doing inside the confines of the stadium? There's, uh, it's like I think it's like turns. I don't know if it's turns three or four, whatever it is. But inside, in the inside of one of the horseshoe corners, uh, corners, there's um, 
they've built this like um because it's all on car park and asphalt they they've they've towed in a bunch of um small yachts but uh fan- nice little boats and they're creating a mini marina type thing that the boats are going to be on and then you can be on those boats watching the grand prix and i it is as ridiculous as it sounds when i'm describing it to you and to me that is like everything that's wrong with just the crazy commercial side of 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 formula 1 i don't get it at all i think it's just i think it's absolutely stupid monaco and places that actually have a harbor next to the track i can accept that i don't like it but we'll go along with it but if you you're in a landlocked stadium on uh on asphalt and you created a marina just to put a boat on it to watch a grand prix i, I think that's absolutely absurd but it while that's ridiculous it is all linked to something that is ultimately exciting and good for formula one which is that this race taps into an incredible appetite and the element or the factor of f1 becoming more mainstream more popular something that okay it's a it's a massive massive shame and i think f1 needs to do something about this that regular people can't go to these races you look at some of the ticket prices for even just general admission to some circuits is just beyond the realms of the, the average person unless they save up for a long time some of the miami ticket prices are extortionately expensive that is just the nature of major sporting events unfortunately but when you look at the companies that want to be involved the effort that they all these people want to put into the the spectacle and that side of things it does create a sense of occasion around it and I think it's fine for F1 to have races like this. We, we've just had Imola, which is massively old school. And on the post-race podcast, we had you and Mark Ed talking about how it was like going back 20, 30 years in time and wading through mud mud and everything, trying to get in and out of the car park because the infrastructure there is not really good enough for modern Formula One. But then you switch from that, you you hop across to America and you go to this race, which is all about you know the glamour. It's meant to be about the glamorous corporate commercial side of things it all adds up Uh, it means that the races all add something a bit different it's another new circuit it sounds like it'll be quite a low downforce circuit and quite high speed so that'll be quite interesting a few of the drivers that have sampled it seem to be quite optimistic so i'm not while while there are absolutely elements about this race that i do find ridiculous and there's they've jumped through so many hoops to pull it off and there's been some questionable stuff going on in terms of the fact that you know, the race has now been plonked on a predominantly black neighbourhood and a lot of the residents there are unhappy about that, especially as there's a bit of a question mark over whether they'll see any of the actual economic benefits for the race because all the tourism stuff is being pushed to Miami Beach and downtown rather than Miami Gardens, which is the city that the, the Hard Rock Stadium and the track will be in. That 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 stuff is all questionable. There's 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 lots that you can say there that isn't ideal. But I'm not in a rush to write this event off because I do think it will have a, a, a lot that does offer F1. And given all the effort that F1's gone through to pull it off, I, I hope it works and I, and I hope it's good. I don't have a huge degree of optimism about the track layout, but I'm willing to be proven wrong. Yeah, I just had a look at the pictures of that uh, little Monaco recreation. I'd, I'd feel a little bit ridiculous watching from a boat there when you could perfectly easily be watching from a little grandstand. But there we go, I guess, it, uh, if it works for them. Uh, Gary... It's two all for Verstappen and Leclerc so far this year. So have you got any idea who could have the edge at Miami looking at the circuit or is it just too close to call? It's too close to call, really. I mean, I think um, if you look at the circuit because of what uh, what Scott was saying there, it's, it's got two very high-speed straights. Um, so it will be down to efficiency. Um, there's a, there's a, a couple of sort of slalom sections, which would be very fast, slalomy corners. And again, very very difficult to to challenge through those type of corners. But the car that uh, the car that's good at that area with less downforce um, will be obviously a, a, a good package. Um, the, the bit for me, the, the sort of before you get onto the main straight or the last straight, you might call it, um, turns eleven to sixteen. It all looks a bit Mickey Mouse. It's all very tight, ninety degree or long corners, you know, a bit of a chicane in there over the top of a hill. I think it could be quite a good spectacle, but I think it's going to be a bit Mickey Mouse for anything to really happen down into there, other than uh, somebody barging up the inside of somebody. Um, it's a racetrack. 
I don't really care about the marina or the boats or any of that sort of stuff. I, you know, I care about the racing on the track and the majority of people that see it will be all about the racing on the track. They'll be, they'll be watching the TV coverage. Um, and that's what needs to be good. The TV coverage needs to be good and the racing needs to be good. Um, so we'll go from there, but it, it's, a, it's a racetrack. It's, it's again, it's like Himmler. It's got a bit of tarmac and some barriers each side of it and, uh, and away you go. And the, the, uh, you know, the best guy will win at the end of the day, probably, but it's, you know, don't we? We shouldn't change Formula One into the spectacle outside of the racetrack. Formula One should be able to stand stand its own two feet and be the spectacle on the racetrack. That's what that's what it should always be about. And I think Miami could cross that threshold a little bit too far. I suppose I, I would say. Yeah, you're right. It is all about the racing. It doesn't need to be about the showbiz side. But ultimately, Austin's made a, a magnificent event that is focused on the racing. So we'll we'll see how Miami goes, and we'll let you know on our post-event podcast what we made of being there thanks for your time scott and gary head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's loads to read from myself scott gary mark hughes and the rest of the team check out our other podcasts on MotoGP, indycar and formula e and if you're looking for something to watch there's always something to enjoy on the races youtube channel we're heading off now to the usa so stay with us for everything you need to know from the miami grand prix The Athletic.